And welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And this week, we are going to be talking about the coalitions and conflicts at the heart of European policymaking. We have learned for many years about the institutions of the EU and the formal structures and many people can tell you perfectly how Jean Monnet had wanted the European Union to work. But the reality of today's European Union is that it's as much defined by the informal power structures, the coalitions and the enmities between different governments. And to get anything done at all, you need to build coalitions of the willing rather than just relying on the European Commission to make proposals and see them voted through by the formal structures of the EU. And that's why some of my colleagues have spent the last few months trying to find out in granular detail how the European Union looks to the officials and to the policymakers and the people who influence them in every single one of the member states of the European Union. And on Tuesday, the 30th of October, we're going to have a grand launch event with the German Europe Minister Michael Roth in Berlin to make this incredible tool public. It will be lots of charts and data and different visual manifestations of the loves and hates that define bureaucratic Europe. So to help us understand both how Europe really works today in, in practice as well as in theory, and also to talk through all of the work that went into this incredible report, we have the team that pulled it together. We're all sitting uh, in different parts of Germany. (laughs) In the Berlin office with me at the moment is Anne Müller, who's a senior policy fellow and uh, co-director of the Berlin office. Down the line from, where are you, uh, Josef, in Bonn? In Bonn, yes. In Bonn, from the old capital, um, we have Josef Janning, who is the other half of the leadership of the Berlin office and also a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And sitting next to me is Christoph Klavin, who has been the mastermind of all of uh, these different data-driven uh, devices, which are Rethink project, which we've been doing with the Stiftung Mercator for many years. Christoph, maybe why don't we start with you? Because we've seen you um, looking at all sorts of uh, Excel spreadsheets for many months, uh, trying to work out what's going on. It'd be interesting to just hear a bit about the, the methodology of the, of the project. And then we can maybe go to, to Josef to, to get an overview of what it tells us. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. And uh, thanks for having me. Um, so as you just said, um, this is a, a study that has not done before, as far as we know, on all the preferences and interactions between the 28 member states of the European Union. And we asked policymakers that are sitting in the European capitals every day working on European policy and have done so a couple of times now. And the most recent edition of our pan-European survey uh, we completed this summer. And the Coalition Explorer that we are going to put out next Tuesday is basically the visual mapping of the survey data we collected this summer. And this is a major effort and follows our project's philosophy of giving users, um, policymakers and the public, a tool uh, that measures cooperation and uh, makes it very accessible uh, to browse a a very complex data set. And the sorts of people who are answering the, the questions in the different member states are a mix of what, officials and... Um, that's uh, correct. That's officials, that's diplomats, people working for officials, um, staffers in parliaments um, and representatives of member states all around. 
Great. And also think tank experts like us. I mean, just, to, just to go back very briefly to the very beginning, I think it was in 2013, as early as that, that Joseph and I were sitting in central Berlin in a nice park on a bench thinking, actually, we need to understand better how Europeans cooperate because this is no longer a diplomatic affair. There are officials cooperating, but there is so much at stake nowadays. And the interaction is in a way so so intimate because they work together on so many issues and yet probably some of the diplomacy still plays a role that you wouldn't necessarily tell others you know how you really think about stuff and we thought we need to dig sort of between uh, the lines here and try to to drag it out uh, because we're asking people how they cooperate but we're not asking them necessarily you know to, to finger point or anything so to get more to the political culture of cooperation which is so key to to the European Union's inner workings. So, Josef, why don't you tell us what we found out, how you uh, got the data, but what does it tell us? Well, the data tells us actually uh, how um, people working in the machine room of European affairs and those people that are most close to them and watching them doing their work, how they see each other. So what we do is is gather perceptions, assessments of how interaction works, who's important, who's not so important, who has influence, who has more influence than others, who has been disappointing, who's essential uh, as a partner on issues that are essential uh, for one's own government. Now, and the interesting thing is that while everyone we survey here knows what they think, and they have some ideas of what the others think of them, they don't really know at the end. The, the surprising uh, elements in this uh, coalition explorer is then when you sort of pull away the curtain and now you can, you can see what everyone thinks about everyone else. And you see the mismatches, you know, you see the congruences, the convergences, but also you see the confrontations in this. So who is important? Who's the top dog? Well, no doubt. I mean, the Germans, you'll see a lot of attention that the Germans are getting. Um, the French, uh, the French have caught up also quite a bit. Um, we see a Macron effect, uh, certainly in our data. Expectations with regard to French commitment to more Europe uh, is stronger even than, than in Germany. So this is really the pivotal relationship. Um, in the European Union, but we know also that Franco-German cooperation as such is not sufficient, you know, to pull the European Union into a uh, direction. So it needs more than that. But clearly, you see in the data that, you know, the focus is largely by any uh, member state really on, on France and Germany trying to influence, trying to understand, expressing frustrations, etc., etc. Uh, so France and Germany kind of important. France is caught up. And what about the, the kind of Orban-Salvini alliance? Did that come up in your data? Yes, they do come up quite visibly. You know, one of our questions is also, uh, which other countries have disappointed? And that is where um, Hungary, uh, Poland and the UK stand out very clearly in the 2018th uh, edition. And Hungary uh, attracts the most negative comments from around the EU. Uh, that's quite interesting. There's less uh, of disappointment, uh, generally speaking, in uh, East Central Europe. Uh, but when you ask uh, the Czechs and the Slovaks, members with Hungary and Poland of the Visegrad group, their disappointment levels are somewhat higher than uh, that of uh, other uh, Central East European uh, EU member states. So you see that in the Visegrad group, there is uh, an, an inner tension between the Poles and Hungarians on the one side, which form a very close uh, and strong relationship, and the Czechs and Slovaks, which also form a strong and close relationship, but one that defines itself in part as distant uh, to the uh, two bigger Visegrad Four members. 
Maybe briefly on Italy, since you asked, I've just been chewing on uh, the Italian data. And um, Mark, as you say, I mean, what we see already emerging is that Italy has come from a very committed place as being in a founding member state um, uh, with a public that is very supportive of European cooperation to a different place, uh, as the headlines are telling us these days, a lot of confrontation there. And we see that uh, already in the data that, you know, Italy, uh, first of all, is a country that has been around for a long time, is one of the really larger member states, but has not a very mature set of relationships, uh, even sort of before, you know, we've seen the uh, new government coming into office. And um, our data, which was sort of, you know, gathered slightly before that, uh, already gives indications how I think the current environment is even more difficult to handle for the rest of the EU, because the Italians already uh, previously had very little uh, sort of mature relationships even to Germany and to France and you know to the others to the other movers and shakers I think this creates uh, at the moment an even more difficult environment because we have to discuss such intense uh, uh, stuff over the future of the Eurozone with Rome and um, the Italian data um, also tells us that you know the public uh, uh, attitudes are starting to influence the bureaucratic views of European cooperation. Great. Christoph? Um, just to jump in on, on what Armut just said, uh, Rome is also among those uh, capitals in the EU that is not in the eyes of all the other 27 member states not very much committed to deeper European integration and to cooperation of more Europe. One of our key questions in, in the survey we asked, in fact, it is one of those countries that has the biggest differentiation um, difference in self-perception on that. So the Italians think they are very much committed to, to deeper integration but much less so uh, when you ask all the 20 other, yeah. uh, 27 other members. They also see themselves as very influential. Just maybe a footnote um, on two countries that I think are very interesting. Uh, first of all, the UK, um, against conventional wisdom, has been also in the previous edition of the Explorer, the third best connected EU member state, you know, with a lot of interaction. We see the impact of Brexit already, that key partners of the UK, first and foremost, the Dutch, the Netherlands, have already digested um, the prospect of the UK leaving and have worked themselves even more closely to uh, France and Germany. And so we've had a de facto Brexit before a de jure in, one. In certain ways. I mean, the UK still plays a, a very strong role because everybody's interested what the UK is up to right now. But we see that uh, key partners of the UK uh, and the Hague is, is amongst them. Um, others have less so sort of digested, are still in the morning phase, I guess. But And, and the second country is really the Netherlands. Um, very agile, um, with a lot of potential and a great... Uh, sort of cooperation um, with the core of, of Europe, with France, uh, and even, of course, with Germany, but also with a whole number of other countries. Um, the Dutch are a very interesting case. Can we maybe stay, stay with the Dutch for a while? Because there's been talk for a while about this Hanseatic League, which is emerging. There was this famous um, non-paper, which was signed by eight Northern European member states, which people talked about the, the Dutch and the Seven Dwarfs, I think, was the, uh, the unkind way it was described uh, in the Brussels bubble. To what extent, Josef, um, is the Netherlands becoming a kind of leading country post-Brexit? But some people say that it will join the top six um, in the EU power structure. Well, for sure, the EU power structure will change with uh, the changes in composition. When, Br when Britain leaves and when Italy uh, turns further away from its traditionally highly committed position, that will have uh, impact. We have been looking specifically at this uh, group of seven 
smaller and highly affluent countries, the three Nordics, the three Benelux and Austria, because we see that they could be an essential element to any shaping coalition that uh, France and Germany could be building. And we have asked specifically uh, which among the seven uh, have more impact on EU policy in the eyes of the professionals around the EU than others. And it very clearly emerges that everyone thinks, including the, the large member states, that among these seven smaller and affluent countries, the Netherlands is in the lead, is the most influential one. At the same time, we find that the Netherlands has a uniquely dense uh, relationship with Germany, uh, and it is also seen among its peers, among the other six affluent smaller uh, but also among other countries in, in East and South uh, of the EU, it is seen as most influential. So that gives the Dutch a potential to shape things that is quite extraordinary, but it probably depends on their ability to bring together uh, others. So we've been researching uh, more about uh, the, the rich and smaller countries. We found that the Swedes have a smaller but similar impact. So Sweden and the Netherlands are probably, for uh, any coalition uh, activity, pivotal countries because they reach out uh, in their neighborhood more than, than other countries. We believe that if uh, the, the seven countries would get together and uh, become more interested in coordinating their position, they would immediately uh, generate interest, interest by others, for example, Ireland, to join, uh, or interest by the large member states, because taken together, uh, the affluent seven uh, have a GDP that is higher than that of France, and they pay more into the EU budget uh, than France does. So that would be a sizable actor. And, and I think the interesting uh, part of our data is that you can now actually see what sort of outreach, what sort of influence such a coordination could win uh, in EU contexts. So I'd like to, to um, get on to talking about policies as well, rather than just looking at it in the, in the abstract. But maybe just before we do that, can I just inter interrogate a bit further? If you step outside of the kind of pro-European bubble, I think you see maybe different alliances kind of forming. So, you know, one of your affluent seven was Austria. Um, Austria doesn't see itself as part of the affluent seven. It sees itself more as part of a, a coalition of the willing with Italy, with, uh, the, with Bavaria, with um, uh, Hungary, with most of Eastern Europe. Um, it's a much bigger block, actually, in terms of uh, population and votes in the council than your seven dwarfs, which you were talking about earlier. Um, does that come up from your from your data? Well, Mark, in the data, you don't see it that clear. That is very much sort of a political spin that is given uh, by the Austrians themselves and is echoed in in the debate about Austria. We see that the Austrians actually are the one country among these affluent seven that is most weakly connected to the others. The Austrians uh, seem to be rather content with their relationship with Germany, and uh, they are not very active. So the Austro-Italian link is not very strong. Also, the outreach of the Austrians to uh, East Central Europe is weaker than one would uh, think it was, given you know the whole history of uh, Austria's role in the, in the neighborhood and in the Balkans. There is a visibility when it comes to uh, a relationship with Budapest. Budapest doesn't link to any other Western country in any significant way but to Austria. 
Uh, but still, it is this link is much weaker than the intra Visegrad four links. Austria is not, you know, is not a pivotal actor there. What we represent is the professional view, is not the political spin of that particular government. Is there? There are two narratives. There's, there's one is the sort of the aggregated experiences that people uh, working on Europe have, and the other one is sort of the political profile that a government would like to to present of itself. Just to add to Josef as a, as a sequencing uh, as well, one influences the other. Um, if you look at the top priority of all EU members uh, for the next years, that is migration. Because we do ask everybody, what are your key priorities in terms of policy and who are the capitals that you want to work with? The pattern of wanting to work with partners that share the same interests is not that clear yet. But the priority, um, that is, migration is the thing, has uh, are there any member so states? Defined. Are there any member states that don't have migration as their number one? No, every single member state, all 28. Wow, okay. And what's number two? There is also, of course, a whole number of other uh, policies that are very relevant. Um, we uh, talked a lot in the past days about uh, Poland's interest in the common Russia policy, for instance, and to what extent that is shared with its partners in the Visegrad. Yeah. We look at the transatlantic angle. So what's the Russia-hating community like and the Russia-loving community? Well, there's uh, obviously Poland. Um, there's also the UK. Yeah. Uh, Sweden. Denmark. Denmark, exactly. And so there's also... You so see it's sort of Nordic, in the day, Baltic... In the plus UK and Poland. Well, you know, the way we ask is we, we ask about policy projects. So we've been um, asking everyone about should we have a common Russia policy? And then we also ask should that we be an all EU policy or should it be a coalition, uh, of a more, more formal one or an informal one, or should it be done on the national level? But the countries we just mentioned, they have a rather strong view on having a common EU-Russia policy. So there is this group from Poland stretching to the UK, pretty much in the north, that is rather strongly about this is something that the EU should do together. Whereas when you look at Hungary, for example, the Hungarians, uh, unlike the Poles, are very clearly in favor of uh, keeping the EU out of Russia policy. You find some very high numbers for doing this on a national level. So Hungary, Austria, Italy, what are the other countries? You know, Germany is also not on the side of the enthusiasts to do a Russia policy in the EU. The long shadow of Nord Stream 2. Well, the German side is somewhat split, you know. Uh, it is not clear that they want it to be a national uh, policy only. You know? So the Germans are rather uh, integrationist in general. But the enthusiasm in Poland or the UK or Denmark or Sweden is visibly larger uh, to have an all EU um, Russia policy than is the case in Germany. Yeah, something similar actually goes for a common uh, policy towards the United States. When you ask uh, British respondents in our survey, I think no one actually is in favor of bringing the EU into something that could be called a common approach to the US. So should we go through some of the other foreign policy priorities? Like, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about the other great powers, China, the US? So actually, Russia and the US are the two most important uh, geographical priorities. Um, China, uh, and especially Syria and, and the MENA region at large, which we also included in, in the way we asked, are not that much of a priority, um, given the other choices respondents had. But for Hungary, presumably, China would have loomed quite large, no? For, for Hungary, um, the, the China policy uh, is also not primarily a Brussels thing. They want to keep Brussels out. 
So um, are there any other kind of big surprises that came out of your survey? Well, there's there's one uh, surprising element um, that uh, we find that almost across the board, not for all member states, that is generally people overestimate their own influence in the EU. You know, if the benchmark is uh, the influence assessment of that country by all of the others. So generally, uh, when they have to assess their own influence, uh, they assess it uh, on a higher level uh, than everybody else does. There are a few noteworthy exceptions, like the French or the Germans or, or the Poles. The Poles tend to underestimate their influence. Uh, secondly, there is a general tendency to overestimate one's own commitment to Europe or to deeper integration. Now, um, it doesn't go for all member states, but it goes for the majority of them. They think they are, they are more committed uh, than everybody else thinks that they are. And I think that is, that's quite significant. We find that uh, some countries are closer in their views, even though they may be further away politically. Now, one of the telling examples is uh, foreign security and defense policy. Who has the biggest influence in that area? The Germans and the Brits are pretty much in tune uh, that they think France has the biggest influence, and that is closely followed by Germany and the UK. The French, however, have the view that France has a far larger influence than anyone else. For me, the biggest surprise really uh, in the data is that conventional wisdom probably says we're good at cooperating because we're Europeans, we're doing it every day, we're doing it all the time, we're doing it on various policies. And our data really shows that actually that's a bit of a, you know, a dream. It's not, it's not reality. There is a lot of untapped potential for cooperation. There is a lot of obvious um, cooperation that is not happening. And so what we are trying to do um, by going to European capitals and discussing with the people that gave us their time, their generous time and share their opinions with us, the results and say, look, this is what might be interesting to you to see where your country is placed uh, and where there might be potential for cooperation because the underlying working um, assumption of this project is that if the union um, wants to be successful in the future, we have to untap further potential for cooperation. And um, there's a great deal to achieve still. Yeah. The interesting thing to, to add to Alma, the interesting thing is that we hardly find any strong triangles in the EU. You know, the, the one triangular relationship that probably comes closest to a strong triangle is the relations between France, Spain, and Italy. Even though in, within this triangle, there is a lot of inbuilt uh, differentiation. But outside of that, uh, we have a number of uh, strong bilateral ones, but no other trilateral. So the, the Weimar Triangle, for example, is a pure political animal. You know, we, we tend to, to look at the Nordics as the three Nordics in the EU. Actually, it's a two plus one. And even Benelux is not a triangle. Benelux is... Uh, has a has a tension that runs between Belgium and the Netherlands. So what Ahmed says is that that actually one would think that there are much richer uh, and and stronger cooperation layers uh, between member states, but actually the essence uh, that we find the bare bone is bilateralism. Christoph, what was what was your most surprising finding? On a on another level, um, to to just to add to what Josef and Arnold said is the uh, strong demand for this type of uh, project work and, and and data insights that we find is in high demand um, in capitals across the, the continent, where we now after next Tuesday it has basically already started, but even more so 
um, in the following months, we'll, we'll go and talk more uh, about this data and continue this uh, conversation. So we're a foreign policy think tank. Um, what are the top lessons for foreign policy makers from, your, from, the, from the survey, Christoph? Well, one observation we, we found is that uh, policies such as a common integrated uh, foreign and security policy or common defense structures are definitely there. Um, but there are also a number of other uh, policy projects for potential closer cooperation that actually top the agenda. As Amut already mentioned, uh, immigration uh, or, for example, a more concrete common border police and coast guard is much higher rated um, as a priority. Uh, and so is complete, completion of the single market um, and a common fiscal policy, just to name a few examples. And on the foreign policy thing, do we kind of see different tribes emerging around uh, some of these priority areas? I mean, Africa and uh, border control, Turkey, China, Russia, the US. Well, we see a tendency um, when, you, when you look at the questions we ask on the preferred uh, level of decision making among uh, for policies in the EU. So we see that tendency that for, for example, smaller countries tend to be more in favor of having a common approach. Whereas some of the bigger member states, for example, traditionally the United Kingdom, is more in favor of working in coalitions on specifically these topics. Uh, let's, let's be realistic on this. Uh, on a hierarchy of topics, a foreign policy issue that is not related to migration uh, comes up uh, only on um, the fifth rank, which is an integrated foreign and security policy. That is the first genuine foreign policy issue on the priority list when you look at all of the EU member states. However, there are, of course, uh, countries that, that think that this is more significant than others. Uh, and there you can see that there is, um, there is sort of an old EU, new EU uh, division. In the old EU, the idea to uh, move ahead on an integrated foreign and security policy is stronger uh, than uh, in the new EU. Uh, there is um, a, a, a dividing line uh, on the issue of defense. Uh, in the old EU, uh, there is um, a core of countries that reaches from down in Spain to, uh, uh, to Germany that is relatively open uh, to doing more of a common defense in the framework of the EU, whereas in the North and in the East, um, that uh, meets quite uh, uh, a high level of reluctance. So this is where, where you see some of those cleavages or regional preference clusters uh, emerging. But you know the complicated thing is you really need to go into the data for each of the single countries in order to to, to actually map where they are, uh, because the differences between them uh, are quite strong. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. We normally have a, a bookshelf segment at the end of the, the, the podcast. Um, I've got a big recommendation, which is after Tuesday, to go to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash EU Coalition Explorer. And you can be the biggest expert on the coalitions and conflicts that define today's European Union and look at all the incredible charts and data points that Christoph and Josef and Almut have been gathering for the last few months. Um, so that's my uh, book recommendation. But um, I don't know if any of you uh, have got 
other things on your bookshelves or have you just been completely obsessed by the Coalition Explorer for the last few months? Christoph? We have been, but um, <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to digest it bit by bit, I also highly recommend reading uh, at least some of the pieces Arnold and Joseph published recently um, on, on kind of interpreting uh, the data and what it means for, for Europe today. Oh. Okay, well, we'll put links up to those as well. <laughs> <laughs> that is so kind of you, Christoph. I'm, I was in Prague uh, the other day uh, discussing some of the data of the Explorer, and I was given um, a little booklet of poems by, I find, a remarkable European policymaker, a Czech diplomat, uh, who is key for his own country in shaping EU policy, and um, by the name of uh, um, Tomasz Kafka, who is a diplomat and poet, and uh, who is not related uh, to that uh, Kafka that we know, but um, mm. his family is a family of translators, uh, um, and his father translated uh, Kafka's writings, Franz Kafka's writings, into the Czech, because as we know, um, in Kafka German. wrote in German. Wow. And um, so Tomasz Kafka, his, his son, um, is writing... Very interesting poetry, sort of reflecting um, political developments in, in Europe and other things he comes across, uh, including in my own language, in German. And I find that uh, exceptionally and, and very entertaining. And also, I think now that the Brits are leaving the European Union, the Czechs are next on my list to take the key role in having the greatest sense of humor in the European Union. <laughs> what, what, uh, what's on your bookshelf, Josef? Well, I have here a book by a French historian, Thierry Lenz. It's called 1815. I have the German uh, edition here. It's 1850. The subtitle is The Congress of Vienna and the Refounding of Europe. And I, I bought it a few years back and started to read it and then put it aside. But what, uh, what I remembered, and I, I picked it up again, and now I'm, I'm really digging uh, into the uh, chapters. It's a rather, rather thick book. Because his argument is that 1815 is not just the restoration of Europe. Uh, that was the uh, a rather elaborate construction of a security system for Europe. Uh, his argument is actually that this system was held in place because the uh, superpower at the time, Great Britain, uh, was sort of keeping it up. And his argument is that in the moment in which the superpower turned away from uh, the system that it had helped create and had sustained for, for decades, the system got into more and more troubles and then sort of broke up uh, into a series of wars which many people uh, would also uh, see as um, reason for World War I uh, and ultimately also the reason for World War II. So, so his argument is actually it is underrated as restoration and is oftentimes overlooked uh, how that system then disintegrated. And of course, you can, you can imagine why this book has recaptured my attention because uh, I also see another country sort of retreating uh, from uh, a security system that it had created um, and I wonder what uh, um, what other lessons I may find in these in these chapters for um, the, the current uh, state and security system. Great. So we've got um, over 200 years of European coalitions on this podcast. So um, thank you very much to all three of you for a fascinating discussion. If you've enjoyed listening to it, I hope that you will tell other people about the podcast on social media and also by giving us a rating or review on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to us on, on this podcast. There are links to all the things we mentioned on www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Christoph Klavin, Josef Janning, Andrew Müller, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. 
The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hackenbreusch. Our producer is Wiebke Evering and our editor is Katharina Botel-Azzinaro. Thank you.